The Old Testament lesson for today is from the book of Genesis, chapter 6, verses 9 through 14, and chapter 7, verses 17 and 18. This can be found on pages 6 and 7 of your Pew Bible. The story of Noah and the flood illustrates both God's righteous anger over our sin and his gracious provision for our salvation. A reading from Genesis, beginning in chapter 6, with the ninth verse. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now on the earth, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. Our reading continues in chapter 7 with the 17th verse. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. We are six weeks in to our three-year chronological study of the Bible, trudging our way through. The first four Sundays, we focused only on creation. We called that series, How It Started. And then we got to the fall and Cain and Abel and the flood, and we're calling this series How It's Going, (laughs) How It Started, and How It's Going. And it's generated so many interesting discussions around the congregation, especially at the life groups as we dive into these texts together. But there's one question that keeps coming up in conversation with so many of you. I keep getting it in various forms. The question goes something like this. How are we reading Genesis. How are we to read it? Are we to read it as literal stories of actual history, or are we to read it as fables and allegories for Christian living? How are we reading Genesis? So I thought before we look into Noah's Ark and the flood today, I would take just a couple of minutes to try to help us understand how we are reading these stories from Genesis. Usually when a story like Noah's Ark is taught or preached. It's done through one of two frameworks. The first one often, the one that I was raised on in learning about Noah and the Ark, is the framework of moralism. Moralism, a moralistic view of Noah and the Ark. A moralistic view of Noah and the Ark goes something like this. Be like Noah. Be like Noah. He was a righteous man. He was obedient to God's instructions. Even when the whole world around him was 
corrupt and disobedient. They were wondering why in the world he was building a boat in the middle of the desert. He stayed true, and he was righteous, and he was obedient to God. Be like Noah. Even when all your friends are turning away from God and his laws, remain faithful to God. That's what I was raised on hearing Noah in the ark. The only problem with this, of course, is that Noah wasn't always a righteous man. You know how the story goes. After the flood waters subside and the ark lands, Noah builds an altar and worships God briefly, but then he falls back into sin. He gets really, really drunk and debauched. It's pretty sensational stuff. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 9. Can you imagine your college-age kid coming home from a party totally drunk saying, Ma, you told me to be like Noah. (laughs) So we're not going to read the story through a moralistic lens. There are moralisms to take out of the stories of the Old Testament. There are morals to the story. It is amazing how righteous and obedient and faithful Noah remained even in the corrupt generation. But really, among all of the figures in the entire Bible, there's really only one who is sinless. And that is Jesus Christ. He is our moral exemplar. We're going to be in the Old Testament for another year. So we have to remember this. They're not always moralistic tales, though there are good things to take away. The second framework through which people often teach or preach or read Noah and the Ark is through apologetics. Apologetics. Apologetics is a series of arguments designed to prove the existence of the God of the Bible. It's usually an intellectual discourse. And so with Noah and the Ark, in an apologetics framework, people really try to prove that there was a global flood. It's usually tied to the Genesis 1 and 2 narratives. They try to prove that the earth is 6,000 years old. It's a young earth. This is apologetics. This is one way of reading Noah. The problem that I see with this approach is that it's actually quite difficult to convince somebody of that. People who've gone to schools and universities that have taught them a different way of viewing the age of the earth and so forth, it's hard to win them over with this argument. But the second reason I see an issue with reading it only through an apologetics lens is that it's not really what we are called to do as Christians. Think about the Great Commission. Jesus says, go therefore Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus didn't say, go out and try to win intellectual arguments with unbelievers in college classrooms. That's important, that's helpful, but it's not really the main reason that we read Noah and the Ark. So we're not going to look at Noah and the Ark or many of these stories through Genesis through a moralistic or an apologetics framework. So how are we to read Noah and the ark. What framework, what lens are we looking through? It is the lens of the gospel, the lens of Jesus, his words, his work, his life, his mission. That's the lens through which we are going to read Noah and the ark. Why would we do that? Well, because Jesus himself told us to do that. Maybe you know the story. It was after Jesus had died and risen from the dead and there were some travelers walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus and they were feeling really distressed and and disappointed because the Savior that they had been following was apparently dead. But Jesus, the risen Jesus, appears next to them on the road to Emmaus and he's walking with them. And it says in Luke chapter 24, it says, beginning with Moses and the prophets. Moses wrote the Torah. Moses wrote the story of Noah. It says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus showed them all the things 
concerning himself. All the things concerning himself. What Jesus is presenting here is that all of the Old Testament is like a series of signposts that point directly to him. So that's how we're going to read Noah and the ark. How does the flood and the ark and this man Noah, how does this story point us to Jesus? That's how we're going to look at it today. And what we will find as we unpack it together is that it has far more relevance to our lives than a simple moralism. And it is far more convicting and compelling than any apologetics argument could ever prove to be. So let's look at it together. We're going to focus really on one verse, chapter 7, verse 18. We're going to look at this and wonder, how does this point us to Jesus and what does this have to do with our lives? Look with me at Genesis chapter 7, verse 18. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly. I'm going to pause right there. I really want us to picture these waters, these floodwaters, filling the earth. What are the floodwaters in this story? Well, the water is the righteous wrath of God. It's the righteous wrath of God. God says as much in chapter 6, verse 5. He describes why he's sending these waters. Chapter 6, verse 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. God saw the corruption and the evil of every thought and intention of the heart, and he said, I will blot it out. I will send my floodwaters to blot it out. That's righteous wrath. Now, we don't really like to think about this, do we? We don't like to focus in on this in the Bible, this part, this characteristic of God, that he has righteous wrath. We would rather maybe that it wasn't in the Bible, I've even heard people say things like, I believe, or I don't believe in a God who, and they finish the sentence with something like, I don't believe in a God who would be this angry. But if we really unpack that and think about this together and ask ourselves, why does it make us so uncomfortable to focus on the righteous wrath of God? When we think about that, we, we realize, you know, God has every right to have righteous indignation when he sees things going wrong in what he created. Think about it as an artist. God is the great artist. He created the heavens and the earth. God created an artwork, and doesn't an artist have every right to do with his artwork what he wants? A few weeks ago, my son was painting in the kitchen. My kids love watching Bob Ross. Do you know who Bob Ross is? Yeah. Happy little tree. They just love watching Bob Ross. But a couple months ago, my son decided, I'm not going to keep watching Bob Ross. I'm actually going to bring out some paper and paints and water, and I'm going to paint along with Bob Ross. So he set it all up in the kitchen. He put the iPad on the counter, and he had all his art supplies in front of him. And I was over in another room, and I could hear him watching Bob Ross on YouTube. 
And um, it didn't take long for me to start hearing sounds of frustration coming out of <laughs> Riley's mouth. It wasn't going quite as well for Riley as it was for Bob Ross. And after a while, I heard him just get so upset. His, his paper was all soaked because he was using too much water and it was getting all wrinkly and it was just ugly. And I heard him <laughs> just cry out, Rah! and he crinkled it up and he threw it away. And he rewound the YouTube and started over with a new canvas. But none of us thought Riley didn't have the right to throw away what he had created. God created the heavens and the earth. There's an old expression The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is God's creation to do with what he wants. But there's another reason that we ought to give God the right to be righteously indignant, to have righteous wrath when things are so corrupt in his sight. And that is because, well, if we're honest, we want the right to have righteous indignation when we see something go wrong, don't we? I feel that when I get cut off in traffic. Oh, I just get so angry. How could they do that to me? When we see something going wrong in society, you know, it's been said that we live in an outrage culture. Have you heard that? Maybe you've seen the bumper sticker, if you're not mad, you're not paying attention. kind of love our outrage. It feels kind of good to be outraged, all the things going on out there. But if we are outraged when we see things going wrong, and yet we say, I don't believe in a God who could have righteous wrath, where have we placed ourselves? We want to reserve a right for ourselves that we don't want to reserve for the God of the universe. No, God has every right when he sees corruption to have righteous wrath about it. The wrath of God is always righteous. It's always pure. God is pure and cannot be in the presence of what is impure or sinful or corrupt. So it makes sense that he would send a cleansing flood to to deal with it all. If you're checking your watch, we're still talking about wrath for the next couple of minutes. It it lightens up in just a moment, okay? Stick with me. I want to go a layer deeper on the righteous wrath of God. We realize, hopefully, now that God has every right to be righteously indignant when he sees things going wrong. And if he wants to send the flood to clean it out, to clean slate, he has every right to do that. That's something we can maybe make intellectual agreement with. It's harder for us to accept that God's righteous wrath is what I deserve. Isn't that harder to accept that? Oh, yes, there's corruption out there. It's harder to accept it from what's right in here. But you notice what it said in that scripture. God looked at the world and it said, the thoughts, every thought and intention of the heart was corrupt in his sight. So I just want to come down for a moment. I want you to pretend with me that, you see these screens up here? I want you to imagine just for a moment that every thought and intention of your heart was going to be shown in a video, be shown in a movie. Yeah, I'm looking at Eric Kim, and he made eye contact. Eric, do you want your video to be shown? Every thought of... No, you, yeah, for all to see. I'll be honest with you, as your pastor, you know, I might look pretty righteous on the outside, but if there was a video shown of every thought and intention of my heart, hmm, you know, it might look a little bit like that 
warped painting that Riley had to throw away. When we think about what made God so upset, we have to realize that, but by his grace, we deserve his righteous wrath. Hmm. Genesis 7, verse 18 goes on, though. The water is not the only thing in this picture. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. Can you see the ark floating there above the righteous wrath of God? What is the ark? The ark is is floating there, and it is the vessel of God's grace. It is a wooden vessel of God's grace. God could have wiped out all of his people, including Noah and Noah's family and the animals that they had on board. God had every right to do that, but by his grace, he sent a lifeline. He chose a family that he would save by his grace. They floated on the face of the waters. They clung to the wooden vessel of God's grace. And if we're looking at this story through the lens of Jesus Christ, of the lens through the gospel, we realize that we too have a wooden vessel of the grace of God. For us, it is the cross. Look what it, what it says in Romans 5, verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. You realize that what happened on the cross is that we were being saved by his grace from the wrath of God. I think if we were to pull 10 Christians walking down the sidewalk, when Jesus died on the cross, what did he save us from? Probably nine out of 10 would say he saved us from our sins. And that is true. Jesus did save us from our sins, but really Jesus saved us from the consequences of our sins. What are the consequences of our sin? The righteous wrath of God. He took the wrath of God for us, like an arrow flying from heaven, the righteous wrath of God. Jesus stepped in the path of that arrow to receive the full blunt force of the righteous wrath of God so that we wouldn't have to. We are saved by God, from God. We are either under his grace or we are under his wrath. That's the binary choice. Thank God for our wooden vessel. Thank God for his lifeline that he has thrown out to us, that we might float upon it, that we might cling to it, that we might hide behind it. It sounds like this story is a warning. And there is a warning in this story, but really it it doesn't end with a warning. It ends with a promise. It ends with a beautiful, beautiful promise. Genesis 9, verse 11. This is God speaking to Noah after the floodwaters have subsided. I establish my covenant with you that Never again 
shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I have made between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. That's us. God says, I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And Noah looked and he saw a beautiful rainbow as a sign of God's promise that he would never again flood the earth with his righteous wrath. How does this point us to the story of the gospel, to the story of Jesus Christ? I want to show you this Hebrew word for bow that God is using here. We picture the rainbow immediately, and he is pointing him to a rainbow. But look at this word bow in Hebrew. It's kasheth. It's specifically, it's the word for war bow. Picture a bow and arrow, a giant bow and arrow. The weapon of God's righteous wrath. God hangs it in the clouds. It's not facing downwards. God says, I will never send my wrath upon the earth again. The floodwaters will never come. Instead, he places his bow in the clouds. And where is that bow aiming? It's aiming right into the heart of heaven. God would pour out his wrath once again, but not on us. Upon himself on the cross. Sometimes I hear the question, why is there so much wrath in the Old Testament and none in the New? But the honest answer to that is there is just as much wrath in the New Testament. But there, it is all poured out on one afternoon on one man. We sang it earlier. Till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. We flowed upon the waters of his grace, the water, the wooden vessel of his grace. And the rainbow reminds us of that beautiful promise. You ever notice when a rainbow comes out, people stop what they're doing and they just, ah. Oh. That's how we are led to feel when we behold a beautiful, undeserved, never-ending, never-stopping lifeline of the grace of God given to us in Jesus Christ on the cross. He's our only hope. Amen.